0: shalom friends welcome and thank you for being here with us it is a delight to um be with those in the room those on the live stream and those on the recording end as we know others are trickling in here early monday morning on the west coast midday on the east coast and wishing everyone a shavua Tov, a good a good healthy week um there are are no lack of problems for us to address locally nationally globally <laughs> And yet, we can start uh, joyfully just uh, celebrating being together, and that we're all in this uh, joyful struggle for for justice together. Um, So we hope that uh, you'll enter the conversation with us today. I'm going to have the chance to talk with my teacher and mentor Ruth Messenger a little bit, and then open it up to folks in the Zoom as well as folks in the uh, in the live stream, and uh, uh, to, to broaden the conversation both to deepen our understanding of the realities and of what we can do. So first, um, I suspect everyone who's currently in this room uh, knows, but for those who for some strange reason might not know, Ruth W. Messenger is the Global Ambassador for American Jewish World Service, an international human rights organization, which she ran from 1998 to 2016. I was deeply, deeply impacted during those years. I'll say more about that. Additionally, Messenger does social justice and organizing work at the Jewish Theological Seminary and at the Meyerson JCC and teaches Jewish women social justice entrepreneurs. For the New York Jewish Women's Foundation, she recently completed the development of a social justice and racial justice curriculum for Melton Schools. Very exciting. Ruth is a trained social worker and previously had a 20-year career in elected office in New York City. She serves on several boards, has received several honorary degrees, is a member of SAJ Judaism that stands for all, is married to an educator and has three children, great grand, uh, excuse me, eight grandchildren and three and a half great grandchildren. One who I just learned lives with her, um, which is wonderful. Um, I have to say um, also that I was um, in no small way, you know, sometimes you talk about interventions in your life and they were one of a million, but my experience in AGWS in college post-college, in rabbinical school, post-rabbinical school, um, was completely transformational for me in ways that um, I don't know if I'd be a rabbi, I don't know if I'd be a social justice activist, um, in very deep ways. And Ruth's role in that was was incredible. So Ruth, thank you so much, as always, for spending some time with us today.
1: Thank you. Despite, despite your over-exaggeration and hyperbole, thank you
0: very much. <laughs> great, great. Um, so, friends, um, until we get to the open conversation, feel free to put your thoughts in the chat next to us here. And, um, you know, it's always hard to say this is the most pressing issue of our time because we have climate change, um, because we have war, um, because we have global poverty, um, because we have people dying at any moment where we can make an intervention. Um, and yet, if we created a hierarchy of domestic priorities, it would be difficult to not place the the risks facing democracy top on that list Um, because democracy is what fundamentally sustains this country and has the potential to sustain it to its grandeur. Um, Professor Emeritus Michael Walzer at Princeton University um, has identified uh, that, of course, it would be anachronistic to say the Torah is uh, de- democratic. Um, he he shows how the deep roots for democracy are planted. The seeds the seeds for democracy are, are planted in the Torah. And he, he lays out a number of, of very interesting ways on how that's done. And so this is a Jewish contribution. And at the heart of it is not just the societal governmental structures, but the fundamental notion that we talk about so much that all human beings are created Elohim in the image of God. And that means every human being counts and matters. And that means um, has a voice. Um, and so th- we have a great stake in this um, as Jews theologically. And we have a great stake in this as Jews um, who understand what it's like to not live in a democracy and what that means for all minority groups. So Ruth, let me, let's start on the abstract. Um, before we even get domestic, I'm gonna ask you a hard global question. Should we be advocates for democracy on the global arena and um, that might feel like an, an obvious uh, an obvious yes, but how do we think about this balance between uh, cultural imperialism and um, and uh, and moral relativism as we um, as Americans as Westerners advocate for democracy in the global South and around the world?
1: Okay, so um, I'm going to take a either further step back since okay. your introduction was so sure. glowing. I just want to say that. Um, Shmuley is one of the many people um, who uh, taught me early on in my learning, coming out from politics, going to American Jewish World Service, learning more Jewish teaching that underscored what I believed and what I did. But he's among the very few people who not only taught, but practices every day that um, study is only important because it leads to action. Um, Shmuley is an activist who basically is all of his action on deep thought and analysis, but um, we have stayed partnered on many different issues because he believes in acting on what he believes. So that's where I would start. And then I want to answer your question about America's role in the world in a complicated way. Cultural imperialism, that is thinking that We should get to control other people and we should get to tell them how to run their lives. We know is a bad thing. It's bad domestically, it's bad in our own families, it's bad in our own communities. Um, And we have too many, many, too many examples of it in the history of the United States, particularly the race-based history of the United States. That said, I think we do have an American and a human and a Torah-based motivation to fight oppression to fight authoritarianism, um, to fight division, to fight intolerance. And so that puts us on the road to saying that certain places are, sometimes in this country, by the way, but that certain forms of government, certain kinds of leaders are bad for the entire populace. What what it gets replaced with as you move that, we don't have the perfect model. And in fact, it's just interesting. I don't, we shouldn't go off on this next point because it's too long a discussion, but I actually find more people who are paying attention to the news these days and are distressed by the obvious splits in our Congress saying maybe there is something to the parliamentary form of of government. So I don't know the answers to that, but I just think it's interesting that Americans who were so sure that everything we did was right and that we had the right model, partly because that's what we were taught, which is too bad, um are now themselves saying wait a minute we can see the flaws in some aspects of our systems of government and we should be looking a little more deeply so no we shouldn't tell other people what to do but we have an obligation to help them um stop things that are clearly hurtful to them that's what i would say and then i want to underscore what you said about democracy and voting rights um and i think i've come to this slightly slowly because as you know i could I couldn't have discourse forever on global poverty issues and global human rights issues. I can talk about um, environment and climate change. I can praise your incredible work at the border and talk about the need to not only provide services to people in need who are coming into this country, but to try to shape a rational immigration policy for this country. But as soon as you get to that next level, a rational immigration policy, a sensible commitment on environmental goals, that you realize that none of that will work unless we protect and preserve our democracy and the key point for this discussion and for my discussions these days is i don't feel good about it but i feel it necessary now to say that our democracy is seriously under threat Thank
0: and you. it's under Go ahead. Thank you. I assume that point you made in passing that you thought we shouldn't go into, which if this is what you're referring to, I agree, we shouldn't go into it, was the collapse of the Israeli coalition. Is that right? Yeah. OK. Right. So if folks didn't hear that today. Um, yeah, there'll be another call for election, presumably, um, in the very near future. Um,
1: the question is, what are the strengths of that model as opposed to the strengths of our model? And who knows? And we, we ought to be paying more attention to that. I also want to um, say one other thing, because I agree with you. Um, First of all, it is absolutely hilarious that you cited Michael Walzer, because Michael Walzer knows this. But Michael Walzer was the first um, section instructor. So he was not yet a professor that I had who told me I was not living up to my potential.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that.
1: It's absolutely true. He handed me back. He handed me back a blue book in my freshman or sophomore year with a note that said, you can do better than this. I will never forget
0: it. Oh my goodness. And the truth is we don't only need that in college. We need that our whole lives, people telling us gently and lovingly that we're not living up to our potential, that we can do better. Some people are so defensive about that, um, that it's an attack on them, but the truth is it's a sign of love. If it's coming from love, and boy, um, if he had any, if he gets any credit for a minor intervention in what you've achieved, uh, then I, I I owe him an extra an extra <laughs> source of gratitude. You do.
1: Um, I also want to say that you you quoting Michael, um, you gave a really eloquent planted the seeds for all of us to keep thinking about the extent to which Judaism believes in practices and preaches democracy. I agree with that, mm-hmm. and I want to say that the other half of that is that we actually know from the last several centuries that Judaism thrives in a democracy and not in authoritarian states. Um, and that, that so we have we need to we, we want to invest in the maximum degree of, of quality democracy because it's true to our basic teaching about about people being equal to each other. But we also want to live in democracies because they are better for as we say, they are better for the Jews than other
0: systems of government. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So um, not not to belabor this too long, but touching upon different models of democracy, because it's easy to say democracy is a positive thing. But as you said, there's there's many different models. And one of the one of the consistent concerns um, is um, that in operating by majority rule, that minority voices get drowned out and not um, attended to. So how, how, how do you think about models of democracy that both honor that the majority is what should be celebrated, the majority of popular vote, the majority of citizens, um, but also that there's still a minority who are a part of that society of, of, of citizens, but also a minority of non-citizens, um, and their, their will has to be accounted for as well. So democracy is not enough on its just basic legal level.
1: So I would agree. I mean, I guess I'm I'm focused right now and, yeah. and also thinking up to this program on really what I just see uh, the, to the extent that our voting systems, let me say that for a minute, to the extent that our voting systems have evolved dramatically since initially in this country when we won our independence, um, only white males who owned property could vote. We have come a long way since then. And what I'm most concerned about now is the many, many ways in which we're sliding back, making it harder for some of those, because that's part of the answer. part of the answer is, yes, you need systems, I want to underscore what you said, that pay attention to people who only have a a minority um, degree of power, that you don't silence them. but if you have real free speech, Shmuley, and real free freedom of association, all of which are under some question right now, then those minority groups, and we've seen this, have the capacity to come together, have a capacity to assert themselves, and within our democratic system have the capacity to, go back to a point you made earlier, to form coalitions, to move forward, let's say an idea like Black Lives Matter, and to build their power. So um, Without being able to answer your question about exactly which form of democracy, I want to say there are many opportunities in democracies, plural, for um, groups to be able, for minority groups to be able to make themselves heard.
0: Great, great. Um, So let's zoom into the current moment and some of the threats. As we all know, legislators in states that have a long track record of voter suppression often implement laws and engage in activities that make it harder for certain segments of the population to vote. Um, And let me share just a few of some of those most common ways that voting rights are undermined across the country. And we could try to unpack some of these. Um, Voter ID requirements. Lack of language access. Voter roll purges. Polling place closures and consolidations. Lack of funding for elections. Provisional ballot requirements. Reduced early voting. Reduced voting hours, poorly trained poll workers, partisan uh, election uh, administrators, creation of at-large local offices to dilute minority vote. This just scratches the surface, but these are some of the most common forms of attacks. Now, since the 2022 election, we've seen, I think it's 17 states, but I haven't checked in the last few days, that have positively enacted new protections of, of um uh, uh of the election process. Um but there's uh, uh in uh, roughly not, an equal not, not not protections new attacks on the election oh, process uh, well, there, no there's been some states that have actually oh, okay. put new protections and then uh, roughly an equal number of states that have put new attacks on. Um right. and and um so I would love to kind of get your sense of what you think is happening right now and where you think some of those greatest threats um are emerging from okay um um
1: I want to add one thing to your list. I'll come back yeah. to your focus on voting because it's the issue I raised and it's so important. But yeah. we want to we want to recognize as well um, the redrawing redraw- of districts, what's called yeah. gerrymandering. Yeah. Because yeah. again, in about it's about half the states right now that have um, Republicans in control of the executive branch and both how legislative houses. And in those states, we have we are seeing the evidence, and we have every reason to believe that. First, districts' lines will be redrawn in ways that that are unfair, just what you said before, that create minorities uh, where, where they don't need to exist. And then we have in those states all of those attacks on voting. And you gave a very long list, and it's appropriate that you gave that long list because every single one of those is something that those states that want to suppress people's right to vote are trying. They're doing all of those different things. My my. Um, favorite least favorite example just because it's so dramatic is in the state of Texas. um, uh, If you um, let's say you're going to college in the state of Texas um, and you want to be able to vote in the state of Texas for the four years that you're there, um, you cannot get a right to vote if you bring an envelope from a college residence hall that says that you live there or that you pay bills there. You cannot use that to establish your right to vote. But in the state of Texas, if you have a gun carry permit, you can use that to establish your right to vote, which lets you know a lot about people's people's values. But I think really you listed um, every one of those issues. Obviously, we can go more broadly because you made a reference much earlier to um, non-citizens. And of course, um, in New York City, we are proud to say that we've actually passed a law now that says that green card Residents in New York City can vote in city elections. We haven't we haven't had such an election yet, but we think that's eight hundred potentially eight hundred thousand people, so it's big numbers. Yeah. But everything you said, places are shutting down polling places. They're changing the laws. Some of that I see in my own state. For some reason, New York just changed the law. It's too arcane to go into for this program, but. It just will make things a little bit more confusing for informed voters. And why do they do that? Because somehow there's some desire not to be clear, not to be helpful. Um, and um, I always like to um, I, um, point out, not, not not where you are, even further west than where you are. In the state of Oregon, which is the last I looked, was part of the continental United States, virtually nobody goes to a polling place. Everyone votes by mail. They instituted it. They sent out vote by mail ballots. they say, here's how you vote on by mail. Here's how you vote online. And everyone does it. And you just think like, OK, I live-, I live in the same country. But because, which is sort of underlying a lot of what we're talking about, because we said in developing the laws here that many of these issues could be decided by the states, we're now seeing that the states are not deciding them um, as if they were part of a greater whole, as if they were interested in maximizing the vote, but are deciding them in their own states for their own reasons, very specifically to
0: suppress minority voting. Now, um, on the one hand, so it seems like over here we talk about voter suppression, and over there they talk about their concerns of voter fraud as their justification for, you know. Um, uh, these these new restrictions is there is there any space where we agree like is there any space where voter fraud is a concern where there um where it wouldn't merely be voter suppression where, where there could be some collaborative work i mean i think most of their claims are bogus but you know but it, but we did see in 2016 the russian intervention process and so how do we take the voter fraud concern seriously while still defending defending against voter suppression
1: Oh, Swilly, you're such a good rabbi. I just I'm sorry, I can't buy into that. I think okay. this is I think that maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, look yes, yesterday, yesterday, 20 members of the Congress actually managed to identify some elements of a gun safety bill that they thought they could all agree on that we might get passed. So byebye. Yeah. That's fantastic. But I think that that on voting, um, the the um, former president of the United States, God save us, um, did an unbelievable job using social media and his own approaches to convince people that the system was rife with fraud. Um, I, I would point out that there is a, an earlier example of that before social media. Ronald Reagan, who was, let me be clear, a much better president than Donald Trump, although he was not of my persuasion. But Ronald Reagan talked endlessly about welfare queens. And he led people in the United States, I mean people that were my best friends, to actually believe that there was some set of people who were getting cash benefits and food stamps and coming into grocery stores and using them to buy orange juice to go with the vodka and using them to buy steak. I mean, it just went on and on. And and you had large numbers of what I would like to say were otherwise intelligent people believing that the welfare system was being ripped off. And, And now you have Trump on an infinitely larger scale and with something much more fundamental to our democracy, saying that it's all fraud. And so you see in the polls that that very dramatic, huge percentages of the people who have decided to support Trump and to support his return, um, believing it. But you have other people nervous about is there voter fraud where there's like virtually no evidence of it. Yes, you pointed to 2016. Yes, I'm t- not saying that nothing can happen, but we have states with, as you said, poorly trained poll workers, you know, unclear hours. Um, the, the website in New York that I keep referring people to, I just, I love the name of it. The name of the website is Who's On The ballot.org And it tells you every single thing you need to know about what's legal, whatever. But, but, by and large, we are conducting elections, although we could be doing so much better. We are conducting elections without evidence of fraud. And, and so having endless legislative proposals in the states that you and I both mentioned that are premised on being needing to change the law, tighten the system to, to eradicate
0: fraud is just they're building on a foundation that doesn't exist. Great, great. So two or three more questions for me, and then we'll open it up. Um, before we get to the filibuster, um, we uh, you, since you brought up gerrymandering, maybe you can help us understand what's happening. This is a very complicated uh, system that many of us understand only on the broad level of how redistricting is, you know, uh, preventing democracy by making it, you know, silencing minority votes by cutting them out. But who is in charge of this? What's happening right now? Where is it happening mostly? Like, what can we do around the gerrymandering issue? Okay, so
1: the first sta- step. Here, I mean, just just procedurally. The first step here is the census. So I think a lot of people probably on this call remember that that for various reasons there was really good grassroots effort around the 2020 census. Everybody wanted to be sure they got counted. Um, There's some competition, which you're probably aware of, between and among New York, Texas, and California about who's going to get the, who's going to have the largest number of growth of people so that they can get the most congressional seats. So the census determines um, how many people live in each state. And that's then used to determine how many congressional districts will exist in that state because the one thing we're not doing is changing the number of representatives right now. We have 435 members of the Congress and hundred members of the Senate, um, but it's Congress that depends on the districting. Then if you're gonna make 435 districts in 50 different states, um, you have several guidelines, but the one thing is clear: is that when you do the census, you then have to look at your lines and see if they need to be changed. They might need to be changed because your urban district has swelled as more and more people moved in. They might need to be. There might be exactly the opposite reason: there's been flight from some part of the state, in Arizona, where you are. You know, more and more people are seeing it as a place to move. They have a second home and now they like they better. So the numbers are growing. So there is a legitimate need and it's left to the states. That's the point that we've been making here, both overtly and quietly, implicitly. The states then have some system and there is no mandate for exactly what the system should look like. And to the extent that there's a mandate for how to draw the district, it leaves lots and lots of opportunities. Um, you know, it says a congressional district should be X, let's say, let's say 250,000 people, it's larger than that, but 250,000 people. Okay, but how do you get your 250,000 people? And um, the example that I always give to people, and I'm gonna do it with my hands, if you imagine a big circle, what, what we tend to call in the United States a metropolitan area. And in the center of that metropolitan area is a small circle, which is the, the actual urban area. So anybody on this call can understand that there are two things I could do. I could say, okay, dis- there are a million people here. There, that means there are four of my hypothetical districts. One way to do it is to make the center circle one district because it's more densely packed and then take the ring around it and divide it in thirds. And the other way to do it is like a pie. Now, the impact of those two changes is the world. Totally different. If you assume that people, which we know to be true, that people in that center city live more densely, are more likely to be poor, are more likely to be people of color, then the question of whether you give them their own district, which means they definitely get more or less the highest chance of quote, electing one of their own to represent them. Or do you say, sorry, you are in four different districts where you're gonna to have to fight to have your voice heard. So the districting can, can go a lot of different ways and what we've seen, I think, I think it's about five states across the country, uh, that's a guess, where the districting, the lines that were drawn have been so upsetting to one party or another that people have taken them to court and the judges have ruled that these are lines, these look to the judges like lines that were drawn to favor one group over another instead of to be as relatively equitable as possible. All I'm trying to point out with my little circle example is you could make equitable districts of equitable size and still have very different results. And so who gets to draw it Does the state legislature, which is going to be either Republican or Democrat, get to oversee it? And in New York, just small because it's a national program, but we've just suffered every possible worst example you could imagine. We've had lines drawn. We have lines taken to court. We have lines challenged. We have different lines challenged at different times. So we are in New York now facing two different primaries instead of one because some lines are ready and some lines aren't ready. And the district lines that were drawn, um, well, I'll just give you the one example, it happens to be where I live, but for the first time in the history of the United States, two sitting committee chairs in Congress are being asked to run against each other.
0: Wow. So, well, that, that circle was the best way I've ever heard it explained. I think that I'm going to use that in the future. And so that was a very helpful way to understand what's happening um, that you mapped out. So so, fr- um, so, friends, while, while I have many other questions I, I'd love to ask, I, I've, I've taken up about half of our time already um, with, uh, with my questions. So I would love to open it up to y'all and hear some of the things that you're thinking. Hi,
2: Suzanne, please. Thank you both for that very clear ex- explanation of what's going on. What I really want to know is what can we do? I mean, really concretely, because... It's very scary.
1: Okay, so the one thing I want to say, because um, as you both know, since I've studied with both of you, I desperately believe that we should not reinvent the wheel. So I just want to say that this is an area in which there are some spectacular not-for-profit organizations already at work. Um, The uh, I'll name free for bringing cases and challenging voter suppression efforts. I would call out the American Civil Liberties Union and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And for actually saying, answering Suzanne's Suzanne's question of what should be done, I would would like to highlight the work of the League of Women Voters um, and Common Cause. And the League of Women Voters, for those of you who are as old as I am, you know, used to be sort of like some nice little old ladies who would help little old ladies know how to vote. But they've like waded in with a passion and looked state by state. And in your state, wherever you live, there's a League of Women Voters that will tell you what are some of the best changes to make The other aspect of your question that is really good Suzanne is that this is an area I think even more than the gun control area where any one or two of these steps makes a good difference like if you can if you can mandate early voting and and and, and maximize the opposite of what Shmuley mentioned maximize the number of places where you can early vote where you can take your ballot and drop it off that's a change. if, and I think this is what they do in Oregon, and and Suzanne, I think it's what they do in California.
2: Yes, yeah, so I was going to say we also have vote by mail, and we get yeah, our mail yeah, all the way in ahead
1: California. Of they send everybody a, um, um, a, an absentee ballot, and you can decide a mail ballot, and you can decide whether or not to use it. When I raised that in New York uh, two years ago, people thought that I had the facts wrong. You know, so it's like, so in New York, just for an example, if you want to vote absentee, my husband just went through this for his mother. If you want to vote absentee, you have to fill out a form requesting an absentee ballot. Um, so you know that's like three steps to get the ballot to take it to somebody who's homebound. Um, and so there, I would say that literally any change in, in every state where anybody on this webinar is, there are there are people in your state legislature um Myrie is the state senator in new york who's carrying a lot of this he's wonderful but they have an agenda of changes and those changes really, literally identify every single thing that you listed as things that people are doing to suppress the vote there is an affirmative legislative action that would that would diminish or eliminate that possibility
0: great eddie yeah jump in eddie
3: no, thank you so much to both of you, um, and, and thank you, Ruth, for, for being very vocally clear on this issue. Um, something that uh, myself and my great mentor Rabbi Shmuley did during uh, the 2020 elections was we were both keepers of the peace and poll watchers, and here specifically where uh, myself and Rabbi Shmuley live in Arizona, we noticed a high rise and a very scary, scary rise of voter intimidation. Where we saw a lot of the, of of a, of a particular party at hand, who was being very vocal in targeting people, and specifically minorities. I remember seeing signs that, like outside of polling places, that said either vote this party or you're you must die because you're a traitor. And that this was happening in Arizona. And I, based off of the current trends, and we're seeing that that's going to happen a lot more. I'm really worried about this election cycle. I'm wondering what your recommendation can be for the Jewish community to uh, oppose and and maybe um, come together to combat the voter intimidation that's happening across the United States. All
1: right. So that, that's a terrifying addition to the to that story, um, but. Um, yes, again the 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 procedures of the board of elections the the question of like um the signs that say you can't uh, get between a sign and the polls, the question of, of watching who's outside and what they're saying um, and' looking to control that or counter it. Um, I want to give a shout out here, and Eddie, I will send you for you and Julie to post because. It's just a new effort, and I don't have enough of the details, but a man that most of you, many people on this call probably know, Aaron Dorfman, who used to work at American Jewish World Service, um, recently left his job at the head of the Camp for Family Foundation and has started an initiative called something like Judaism and Democracy. Um, and what I most like about it, Eddie, and the reason it's responsive to you is it's like really talkless, nitty-gritty details. And he's talking about people stepping forward to be trained as poll watchers where the poll watchers are untrained, stepping forward to be lawyers. That's another thing that doesn't necessarily relate to everyone on this call. But in state after state, we're going to need lawyers who are watching what goes on. We're going to need poll watchers. We're going to need people ready to bring cases. In New York, we've had, I'm sure, elsewhere in the country, you've seen this, there are people who lawyers standing by who've gone to court to keep polls open because at eight o'clock at night there was a line of 500 people, usually because they were being processed badly, and they've gone to court literally at that moment and gotten through and into a judge to sign to keep the polls open. So there are some very direct and specific tasks, and I think that would extend to developing a cadre of people who would be on the lookout for intimidation? Who would know under what law they could be reported? I would look for um, um, at, at either ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center. I would ask them that question specifically. If it happened last time, it's going to happen this time. They are much. The people who want to suppress the vote are coming in like gangbusters. By the way, one thing we didn't mention, Shmuley. I just want to keep so many things, but there are there are increasingly good efforts around the around the country to identify it's usually the secretary of state. Sometimes it's the state attorney general, and sometimes it's the governor or a named governor appointee, not an election. But those people are in charge of a lot of the issues that we talked about. So um, also looking at elections um, to get secretaries of state who are committed to expanding the vote instead of restricting it makes makes a difference. I want to make a point here because I know that people whose faces I can see on the screen know this. But 95% of what we need to do to protect the vote in the ways we're talking about is non-partisan, is non-partisan. The citizens of this country, the non-citizens of this country, the elected officials of this country, the lay activists of this country can engage in nonpartisan activity. But for the point of view, or purpose of this webinar, rabbis can engage in nonpartisan activity. I'm now making the rounds of some West Side synagogues where I live just to tell people that there are two primaries and why, and that there is early voting and absentee ballot voting. That's all nonpartisan activity as long as I don't stand at somebody's bema and announce who they should be voting for. Um, it's all legitimate. So I think it's important to get that idea across. But Eddie, I think you have a great story. I would go directly to, I would look at the uh, Arizona state law and then I, but I would go to one of those legal groups and tell them that you know what happened last time and what, do you, what should you do about it this time.
0: Great, so our friend Austin here is immersed in the streets working with the unsheltered on a daily basis um, and even doing it in the 110, 115 degree temperatures. And um, maybe he, Austin would want to share a little bit about his experience um, with registration issues for folks who have no home um, and for others who are vulnerable, like homeless or native voters who live in the reservation. So, Austin, we'd love to hear from you.
4: Hello, my friends. Hope you're all doing well this morning. Uh, yeah, so I, I lead Arizona Jews for Justice's homeless outreach program called AZ Hugs for the Houseless. And we do a lot of work surrounding the issue of voter registration for those experiencing homelessness in, in particular. Uh, and it's, it's a really strong, you know, issue in my heart because I've seen a lot of folks who are very passionate about, you know, the, the betterment of our country. And they, a lot of folks who are very, very interested in voting, but there are often a lot of barriers. You know, it's very difficult to hold on to an ID, for example, on the streets. And if you lose your, your ID, you know, it sets you back a step in a multitude of ways, but especially with voting as well. You, you know that takes time that takes effort that can take money or transportation but you know one thing that we did in the last election cycle is we would go camp to camp find folks you know we'd mobilize our teams and it was really beautiful to see so many people uh, you know come together you know for, for this this same civic goal um, I, I think it's a very complicated issue though as well because there are a lot of folks who may be difficult to find or a lot of folks who may be you know, unable to make it to the polling station or who don't have a mailing address. And I guess, you know, my, my question for the group is, you know, what is the correct way to, you know, engage with this community in, in terms with, with voting? How do we get, you know, the most amount of people involved? Is it education? You know, is it um, working with, you know, various shelter systems? I think it's a complicated issue that, you know, probably takes a, a complicated response. But um, I, I guess that, that would be my question to the group.
1: So I guess Shmueli himself might have some things to say about this, but for me, there's like two pieces of this. Um, And thank you for doing the work that you're doing. That would be the first thing to say, but is the first one is seeing what the laws are. And again, the laws are right now, I think state by state. So if in fact, you live on a reservation, if in fact, you are currently without um, an address, what, what can you do to register? What, 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 address can you use what um, and and it's important to know that because there's no point as you say these are people whose lives are full of problems there's no point in helping them understand the importance of voting if in fact there isn't going to be a way for them to vote so the first thing is to know exactly what the state allows Um, i know that in the last presidential election there were some innovations which i don't remember austin you probably know them better than i for um uh, indigenous peoples on reservations to be able to use something as an address, whatever whatever it was. But it's important to know that. Then I think you have what you alluded to, but it's actually an issue that, while it's dramatic in the populations you're talking about, we would all tell you that it affects a lot of other people. And that is people who don't believe that voting makes a difference. So then that becomes like a whole educational piece. Is like this, the, here are stories about what has happened when people went to vote, here are ways in which in which laws get changed, in which different people get elected again. That's not a partisan statement as long as you're not, you know, touting one person because enough people um, got elected. And then the third answer to your question about what to do and it's an important one. I just sent somebody a note on this is to support groups like Arizona Jews for Justice to support groups. I'm serious that are doing civic education. I work with a group in New York that that raises money for congressional candidates all over the country. That is partisan activity. But in states where we know that there are some of the list of problems that uh, Rabbi Shmuley listed earlier, we are also identifying not for profit civic organizations and raising money for them, which is tax exempt money for our donors. And these are groups that will do civic education, that will do voter registration in advance, that will do get out the vote. So. That's a very important piece of the answer to getting, and it goes back to Schmuly's original question about what about the more marginalized groups? What about minorities? And who's working to make a difference? So now I get to tell a quick story because stories work. When I was last in politics in 1997, my adult daughter who was in Boston came down to help me campaign and said that she was bringing a young uh, Latina woman that she'd met in Boston who was interested in seeing what a campaign was like. So she came down with her friend, Julia. Julia was like the world's most hyper-engaged volunteer. She was fantastic. She worked for me for several weeks. She went back to Boston um, in the ensuing, whatever it is, uh, 10 years, 15 years. She established a family. She founded a not-for-profit organization in the Latina community. And then she decided to run for office. And a year ago, she ran for city council at large in Boston, doing a lot of the work that you're talking about, Austin, urging people in her various communities to register and to vote. The results of the election were so close that a runoff was decreed by the, by the state of Massachusetts. And we sat through the weeks of the runoff, and Julia won by one vote. And so you can look her up online. Her name is Julia Mejia and um, she's making waves in Boston and she run by one vote. And that's something to keep telling people. That's the that's why it still happens.
0: Awesome. Um, thank you. So I want to bring in our friend Susan Lubeck who is um, at Jews United for Justice. Uh, Susan, we'd love to uh, thank you for the great work you do. We'd love to bring you in the conversation also.
2: Thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Well you know, in organizing, we just talk, you know, the the kind of classic question is what keeps you up at night. And I just want to say, this keeps me up at night regularly. So thanks so much uh, for the wisdom and the the opportunity to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, another piece that I want to throw in is um, to see if you all have um, additional thoughts is just that unfortunately, you know, Ruth, you were saying that, yeah, like just information about voting, that's not partisan. Unfortunately, um, voting rights in some corners has become a partisan issue. It is being defined that way by the right wing, very intentionally. And just the idea that there should be voting rights is like, that's a Democratic Party conspiracy. And it's just, you know, it's like this idea that the, you know, the Overton window of what's considered normal politics normal political discourse has moved um, to the right significantly and we know that there's massive massive disinformation about you know this idea that the 2020 elections were stolen that voting rights is about voting fraud um, and we are uh, we're just you know we're being subjected to a reality where um, we're just in a massive, you know, sea of disinformation many many just regular people are you know and and where political violence even is being normalized sort of similar to what Eddie was talking about that um so and of course January 6th as like an extreme manifestation of that so um I sometimes I feel that here we are plugging away you know trying to play by the rules and you know uh, move things along, but we're kind of fighting. Um, I don't know what the right metaphor is. Um, you know, we, we, we need maybe a different set of tools. And and, sometimes, and I know one of the things that I've seen in all the years since Trump came in is any, any space you go to that has volunteers, whether it's ACLU, Indivisible, you know, on and on, legal voters, it's full of American Jews because American Jews understand what's at stake when our democracy is at risk. I think what Aaron's doing is great, but I I just wonder, is there more that we could be doing to help people connect the dots and feel a sense of agency and deal with the level and type of really serious uh, threats uh, that we're facing in addition to supporting the ACLU, legal women voters, reaching out to people who are in the house, all that's so important. But just the level of extremity we're dealing with, um, I, I just love to hear your take on that. So, um,
1: it's, I guess, uh, the sad part of my answer is I'm not sure we've invented anything new um, than the systems that we have to, to go out and to organize. But what you described so eloquently, I would have said is simply, in, and I'm going to say this in a good way, is that the people who are talking about fraud, um, talking about voter suppression as necessary, um, um, spreading um, what, what we all believe, and it's been pretty well demonstrated, is not true. Those people are shameless. Um, we could use a little more shamelessness on the other side. We are tentative. That's why I went out of my way to say what I know that you at Jews United for Justice understand. Too many places that I go, and um, Shmueli and Suzanne will tell you, because I discussed this with global justice fellows, too many rabbis that I talk to are, they have two different answers, neither one of which makes me happy. One is, it's partisan. I can't do that from the BIMA. And I'm like, no, let's, could we look at the rules? Could we unpack it? And the second one, which is sort of what you're referring to, is, oh, well, it's impolitic to do it. Some people might not like it. And I'm sorry to say this, but that comes back to my most favorite issue, which is moral courage, which is like leaders have to step forward. And and in my judgment, right now in New York, where, as I said, it's not so much that voter suppression is rampant, it's that voter confusion is very big right now. You know, I don't, I mean, to be honest on this webinar, I don't understand why I have to be calling rabbis to say here is what you need to say this Shabbos because the window for absentee ballots closes on Monday. Um, That's what we're doing. And some candidates, by the way, are doing it. That is some candidates are taking the non-partisan step like they are not saying vote for me, Susan, for city council. They're simply putting out a piece of information that says here's when you vote and where you vote. But but I would like us to see us more rooted in the notion that, that, as we've tried to establish in the last hour, that democracy is essential, that it's um, Jewish, that it's essential for Jews, and that we need to be as tough as the other guys because they're not doing anything brand new. They're spreading their story. I'll be try to be nice for a minute and just say it's their story. It's their version of the truth. truth. And we need to be more aggressive in doing ours. We need to say it makes a difference. We need to say if you care about... Gun safety and you, you know, I mean, I want to do a, a, I was with my congressman the other night at the um, Tikkun at Shavuot, my congressman is Jerry Nadler, and he got asked a lot of substantive questions about congressman, where do you stand on this, what are you doing on that without going to the issues, and he said to them, folks, I need two more Democrats in the Congress. So I'm not, you know, that's the most partisan thing I'm gonna say on this program. But the point is he was just straightforward. He was like, you know, I could tell you where I stand on that issue. I could tell you about my bill on the other issue. I could tell you about the legislation I've drafted 10 years ago. I'm telling you that we don't have the votes right now. And so whether it's fighting voter suppression on a not-for-profit way, engaging as Jews, I know Jews United for Justice does, engaging in communities where there's not enough participation and urging people to get involved or it's the, the nonpartisan get out the vote, or it's the subsequent, subsequent partisan get out the vote, we need to be doing this work. And again, I'm gonna say 90% of it can be done through our not-for-profit organizations, which include our synagogues.
0: Thank you so much. Um, great question, Susan, and thank you, Ruth. Uh, our last question today from, from my great colleague, uh, Eddie Chavez Calderon, um, and then Ruth, uh, after responding, if you wanna offer any closing uh, closing comments. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much. What an honor to be able to to participate in this. Um, I I think that uh, what we saw, um, especially in the 2020 elections, um, was that a lot of folks are very, very focused on federal elections, but tend not to be as educated on down ballot voting and in-state voting. Uh, I think that Jews predominantly are very, very democratically centered and being able to be participating in in the democratic system. Um, We often get asked what we do next. Um, How would you recommend that we can get our um, Jewish community engaged in teaching down ballot voting? Whereas where I see that we have a huge flaw here in Arizona, everybody said that we had a huge win federally. But if you look at locally, we uh, unfortunately lost every single race down ballot. And we're seeing the attacks be, and we're seeing the repercussions of that in, in horrible policies attacking the LGBT community, our voting rights, the immigrant community. I mean, it's just going on and on and on. Um, so I'd love to hear your insights on that. Thank you.
1: Um um, I guess it's it's frankly more of the same, although I think it offers like sort of a new kind of step in opportunity in most likely in the quote unquote off years. That is like when there's not a presidential election is saying to people, we need you now more than ever, because if you don't come out for fill in the blank, the secretary of state election or the redistricting formation or what you're talking about, Eddie, which is just like the the participation on the local town council or city council, um, then we're going to keep being hurt by people whose agenda is against uh, us, against minorities, um, against, um, um, against the people who who, who are not fighting discrimination, um, sometimes are fostering discrimination. These issues are happening right here at home. Now, here's a big item, but you guys in Arizona are so well-organized, you could think about it. And that is, we could all be doing in our spare time. That's a joke. Going back and seeing what happened to our schools teaching civics. And the shortest handle to that would be um, making an effort before 2022 or maybe 2024 in whatever jurisdiction you are in, to see that every high school graduate is given a voting, um, a voter application. You can vote when you just about the age that you graduate from high school. We don't teach it. Um, I'm not sure you're going to change the curriculum or the teaching of civics in the next two years, but you can, in fact, um, uh, make it easier for 18-year-olds to, um, you know, uh, they become they become uh, members of the. Jewish faith on their Bar bat Mitzvah, they become members of American democracy when they turn 18 and we should recognize it and make it easy for them to do that.
0: Amazing. Um, this has been such an inspiring and informative program, Ruth. Um, I don't know if you have any final charge to us before we wrap up here. Well,
1: I would reiterate what I said before uh, near the beginning, which is this is I think a really serious issue and we are all um, challenged by a large number of really serious issues and it becomes a little too easy to um, wring our hands. And instead we need to be um, looking at the issues, doing some analysis, finding the groups that are already doing the work, not recreating the wheel um, and, then, um, and then taking action. Um, Shmueli and I both talked about the, the roots of democracy in the Jewish faith. And the protections that are offered to Jews in democratic um, polities, um, I would, um, you know, slightly um, use the quote, the prophetic observation um, written for a slightly different situation, but to say that the prophet Jeremiah says, "Work for the good of the cities where I have made you go, because if they are prosperous, you will be prosperous too." And um, that's that's wise advice. Um, If you are not participating um, in the most basic stepping stones that we are trying to protect and preserve and strengthen in American democracy, then you can't complain when decisions go against you. And Eddie, I think that applies to local races as well. It's like this city council or this state legislature did this and that, and it wouldn't have if we participated in elections. Since Americans, going right back to Schmooley's beginning, since Americans like to think about how great we are all the time, I would just point out that in the 2020 presidential election, where American voter turnout was relatively high because there was a question of like, who was going to get elected, our participation was 56%. And in Western Europe, voter participation in um, elections, um, national elections is over 80% in most countries in Western Europe. And just in case you want something to think about in both Australia and Argentina, voting is compulsory.
0: <laughs> Wonderful, Ruth. Uh, as always, just a delight and so challenged and supported to learn with you. Wishing everyone a beautiful day and let's continue this this uh, this holy sacred work together. Ha- Thank you, Thank you for all your work. Many blessings for good health